Hey, this is Kevin Weatherby at Save the Cowboy. I want you to tow that stirrup, throw a leg over the candle, take a deep seat, and pull your hat down tight. I ain't gonna tolerate no whining or griping, so let's all strike a long trot down that narrow trail and learn how to ride with God. Come on! What you waiting on? Let's go. Whenever I was 15 years old, I had half of my pancreas removed because I had a gallstone stuck in my pancreatic duct, and half of my pancreas was dead. After surgery, I had lots of complications, basically, because this surgery had never in the history of the world been done on a 15-year-old boy. I was in the New England Journal of Medicine, and afterwards, they needed to check on all of the work that they had done. And so I went in for a CAT scan, and I was... I'd had CAT scans, MRIs, EKGs. I'm pretty sure a UFO had got me and probed some things at some point. I mean, I've had every test imaginable, right? So I'm laying on a CAT scan table, and the guy starts it, and I'm sitting there. You know, it's just another day. I've got 75 staples in my belly, and it's just one of those days, right? So they put me into this CAT scan table, and they slide. They start sliding me in. And right before the guy began, he said, all right, Kevin, we're, we're getting ready to start. Is everything okay? And I said, it feels like I'm getting some asthma. And he comes around, and he walks over, and, you know, you're laying on that, that really, really comfortable table. And he says, how are you feeling now? It's getting worse. He says, okay. And he reaches over, and he closes off my IV. And he walks over, and I heard what he said, but... When you're 15, and you've been through everything that I've been through, you don't really think about it, but what he picked up the phone, and he said, stat to CT room one. Now, my mother was sitting out in the waiting room at Baylor Medical Center in Dallas, and over the loudspeaker, she heard, stat to CT room one, stat to CT room one, code blue. And she looked up, and the door that I had gone through said, CT room one. And about that time, doctors and nurses went flying in there. And she grabbed one of the nurses and she said, what is going on in there? And she goes, ma'am, we have to get in there. She goes, that's my son in there. What is happening? And she goes, he's not breathing. From my point of view, I was laying there. The guy walked over. He picked up the phone and he said, stat to CT room one. I didn't care. I can't breathe. I mean, it's like somebody sitting on my chest. We're not talking about asthma. We're talking about not physically able to breathe. And by this time, man, people are there and they're coming in and, and they, they're getting IVs. And, and, and my doctor, get this, my doctor, my surgeon was walking by when he heard stat to CT room one. He was the closest physician at Baylor Medical Center and he was my surgeon. And he came running in there and I remember when he got there he's yelling orders and he's got a white coat and he's got a red tie and a white shirt on and I looked up at him and I grabbed him by his tie and I said help me and my surgeon looked down and he said God Kevin I'm trying I'm fighting imagine being strangled are you just going to sit there like this if you're being strangled no I was fighting I was kicking the CT room I was trying they were having to hold me down I'm literally fighting for my life and everything is going black Everything is going black, and then I put my feet down, and there was a lady, a nurse. I'll remember that beautiful black face as long as I, she was an angel. Her job was to hold my hand, and she kept telling me, put your feet down, Kevin. Put your feet down. Put your feet down, and then finally I put my feet down because I was dying.
I, I, I didn't have any more breath. There was no more oxygen, and everything is going dark. And finally, I just relaxed, and she goes, now, don't you give up on me. Don't you give up on me, but everything was going black. What I saw in that blackness, or before the blackness overtook me, <laughs> was a disco ball, was a disco ball. And in every little square where there was a mirror was a face of somebody that I had met and loved. And the disco ball was turning, and I was kind of able to see everybody's face at once. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm dying. And it's not near as bad as what they think it is. And then I woke up in recovery with the most horrific headache you've ever seen in your life. What happens when your heart stops? What happens when we die? To answer that, let's, let's see. Number one, Jesus comes to get you. John 14, 3. John 14, 3. When, this is Jesus talking. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Listen, <laughs> I know already people are like, but, 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 suspend what you think you believe and look at what the Bible says is possible. Jesus himself said, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will be with me where I am. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. When we are die, when we die, we are judged based upon one thing. Whether or not Jesus Christ is in our hearts, okay? It's not the amount of good works that we do, or how good you were, or how effective you were, or how long you've been doing it. What matters is the presence of faith, okay? We have to understand in biblical terminology, the Bible talks about the refiner's fire a lot, okay? When you refine something, you are looking to purify it. Okay, and when something is pure, which a biblical word for that is holy, when something is pure or holy, that's all there is. It's the uh, presence of something. When you put gold or silver through the refiner's fire, you melt away all of the impurities so that what is left is pure. That's what we that's why we live our lives like we do people. It's called dying to self. Did you think the refiner's fire was something that's easy? No, we are being refined right now so that when your heart dies, that mustard seed of faith, when everything else is removed, Christ is in your heart. That's what gets us to heaven. Not how long we've been doing it, not how good we did it, but the fact that there was a piece of faith inside of us that radically changed every one of our lives. You only get one shot at making an eternal decision. That is why your heart is beating. And if you have not that decision, I implore you to listen today and do so. The other thing about when Jesus comes to get us is this right here. You will not experience your death. You will not experience your death. How do I know that? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 and 55, the Apostle Paul says this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, 
Where is your sting? See, we, Jesus died for us. He did experience that death. We do not. Why do you think the Bible says that he died for us? He comes and gets us. Why do you think that when some Christians pass away, they die with a smile on their face? Because number one, Jesus was there. He came to get them. And I don't care what their body's doing. They're not there anymore. Their soul is taken to paradise. What happens when we die? Jesus comes to get us because that's what he said. And we will not feel our passing. We're not there. Oh, death, where is the victory? Where is your sting? We have nothing Nothing to be afraid of with death as Christians. We won't be there when it happens. The second thing that we talked about, okay? The second thing that we talked about is that when he comes and gets us, he takes us to a place called paradise. How do I know that? All you have to do is turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And once again, the words of Jesus, I didn't... I didn't say I think Jesus said this. He said them and recorded them in his good book that we call the Bible. And if Jesus didn't mean this, then why did he say it? Right? And plus, it's totally cool. Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. What is paradise like? Well, there's a theological way, a systemic theology, and I know I'm getting a little bit out there a little bit, but there, there's this thing called first fruits that like, if you, if you're unsure of what something means in the Bible, look at the very first time it's ever mentioned. And I'm not saying that that's the definition, but that usually gives the most accurate look at what something means. So when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, where was paradise first mentioned? In Genesis. When God created perfection, he called it paradise. So what is paradise like that we're going to? Now, granted, you have to understand, we're throwing rocks at stars, okay? Our direction is true, our aim is true, and our effort is everything that we've got. But Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And paradise in the Old Testament was a time without pain where God walked with his people in perfection. It was amazing, and the place that we are going is amazing. But I warn you, understand, this isn't the heaven that we're thinking about okay that comes much later this is what happens when we die imagine the garden Eden. the second thing that we can say about paradise is that we will be conscious okay we're not going to be floating around like ghosts and be like ty what are you doing ty <laughs> Come on, right? But I think that that's how some people think it is. It's assumed some super spiritual and then we get wings. You don't get wings. You're not an angel. <laughs> oh my gosh. Listen, 
In Revelation, John is taken to this paradise to see what's going on. And he said, I was taken to paradise, whether in body or spirit, I know not. Now, why is that important? The reason is John was saying, I couldn't tell the difference, guys. So who cares? I don't know if I was a spirit. I don't know if I was in a real body. It doesn't matter. You are going to experience everything just like you are right now. You are conscious. You're in the Garden of Eden. And we are now free from the influence of sin in our lives. We are free from the influence of sin in our lives. No more will we struggle with sin. No more will we struggle with not knowing what is important because we are going to see Jesus face to face, which brings us to the third thing that we'll talk about. We will be united with other believers. Who is in paradise when you die? There are two groups of people that you will meet. And when I say people, I'm talking about humans. Okay, there's two groups. The first group will be Old Testament saints. You'll get to meet Moses and all of the people we talked about. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Ruth and Boaz and all of these people, right? You'll get to meet Old Testament saints. You'll get to meet New Testament saints. You'll get to meet Peter and Paul and James and Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene. And you'll get to meet any believers in your family that you knew. If I meet you there, man, if I beat you there, I'll meet you there. So we'll meet people. We'll see angels and we'll see God for the very first time. We will experience God for the first time. But there's something else that's going to be going on when you get there. And it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Because when you get there in the air of paradise, there's a building excitement of something that's coming. And I ask that you join me for just a moment. To be continued, the story of our eternity, prologue, training. Welcome to God's eternal kingdom. My name is Vati, but it, always, it wasn't always my name. It's the new name I was given after I died. I'm not a spirit. I'm a person. I experience everything right now, just like you're doing. Heaven isn't what you think it is, and it's definitely not where I thought it was in my first life. I've been here for what would be equivalent of 400 years in terms that you can understand. I could go on and on, but today is a big day for me. Today is the day that I get to meet Benaiah. He w- when he was a mortal, he was, David's, he was King David's personal bodyguard. He slew giants, bad guys, baby fingernail coconut slavers, and lions. I've always wanted to meet him, and now my excitement is visible. I've already trained with David's mighty men, and at their recommendation, I've been accepted into Benaiah's training. I never thought anything like this would be possible before reaching God's eternal kingdom here on earth. I thought we would be in church the whole time and that would be boring, but it's not. It's not even close to boring, but it's also something that can't be fully described. God's eternal kingdom is everything the Bible looked forward to. It's amazing and it is true what the Bible says. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. All around me are sights and sounds and smells of God through his redeemed creation. The heavenly host, or angels as you've probably heard them called, 
come in millions of forms and functions from the archangel Michael who threw the ancient dragon Satan into the lake of fire to the small little angels that resemble crickets that do nothing except sing the most glorious songs of God. God's eternal peace that inundates his creation is one without limit and beyond imagination. With man, this is impossible, but all things are possible with God. There are millions of things to do here, but that isn't what is best. I think the most dramatic thing for me in God's eternal kingdom is the ability to know and act upon what is most important. God is in everything that I see, everything that I touch. Every single aspect of my existence is able to be experienced through the workings of God. He is the most important. He is the reason, not just for a season, but for everything. He is everything, and he is in everything. Every action is a worship of God. We still meet at his throne for worship, but every single action here is a way to give and receive the glory of God. I can see his protective love in the spear forms that I will learn from Benaiah. I had a taste of God's glory when I trained with David's mighty men in formation tactics. I saw firsthand how God worked through those that defended the weak against the mighty. It all makes so much sense now, but I guess that's why we call this heaven when we had no idea of what it meant. I arrive at a modest gate and it opens to me without thought or action. It's hard to describe, but it's not an automatic door like at Walmart but rather a passing of a milestone that opens it. There's no disappointment for doors that won't open, only a need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that compels us forward and doors to open. While the most dramatic thing about the new heaven and the new earth is the ability to know and act upon what is most important, the second most dramatic thing is how weird things are. Not weird in a bad way, but only in terms of ways that you never dreamed of. Let me give you an example. There's a group of guys here, I kid you not, that have decided to have a contest to see who could jump the highest. They've been doing it basically nonstop for years. Since we never get tired and can always improve, even in heaven with glorified bodies, they have reached amazing heights. A few of them are able to jump so high that they use a form of parachute to get back down safely. I love to cheer those guys on. They are so happy and they laugh the whole time. It's really like the biggest hold my beer challenge in heaven. My thoughts are brought back to the present as Benaiah meets me at the entrance to his house. He's happy to finally meet me and invites me around back. I walk around the side of a building and there's about 30 other people training. Others are there to watch as well. There's a bunch of angels, some of the Jewish nation that is still revered in heaven, and some of the strange wildlife that supposedly existed in the Garden of Eden when the world first began. I said things were weird and I'm not joking. Everybody here is like Dr. Doolittle. You can talk to all living things. They don't use words we use but we are able to understand each other. It's like there's a depth that was there all along, but we just didn't have the ears to hear each other. But now we do. Everyone joined around at Benaiah's request. He introduced, I still smile every time I hear it. He said, everyone gather around. Please extend, please extend a warm welcome to St. Vati of the Knighthood of the Church of Philadelphia, known for their strength in spite of their weaknesses. An expectant hush fell over the assembled as I began my story for the 10,000th time. Stories are a big part of giving God glory for the lives that we lead. Chapter 1, My Death. I woke that morning around 5 a.m. like I always do. 
I stumbled to the bathroom with only one eye opened. After after starting the coffee pot, which takes forever and seems to suffer from prostate problems like I do, I settled down in my recliner with a good book. After only a few paragraphs, I went to get my coffee and got back into the story found in 2 Samuel. Fifteen minutes after I started reading and five minutes after the first cup of coffee, I started getting sleepy again. It's part of the old age, I reckon. I took my reading glasses off and I put them beside the empty coffee cup on the table beside my chair. With a smile on my face, the good book on my lap, and a wiener dog next to me, I fell asleep. Kevin, a voice said, it's time to get up. I smiled, not because it was time to get up, but that I was instantly transported back to a time of innocence when my dad would wake me up to go work cattle. That had been so, so long ago. I opened my eyes and everything in my life changed in an instant. My Lord was standing in my living room. He didn't look like the white American Jesus the denominations portrayed. Neither did he look like the emaciated skeletal Jesus hanging on the cross the way some faiths adored. It was just him and I knew it. Hi, Kevin, Jesus said. Great wrenching sobs immediately escaped me, not out of sadness or despair or shame, but out of sheer oneness. The man that I had talked to so many times, the man that I had been so thankful for, mad at, and even downright rude to at some points, now stood at the foot of the recliner, and he called me by my name. It's okay, amigo, Jesus said. I laughed in spite of my snot. Who knew souls had snot? I laughed because I'd used that term, amigo, not snot, throughout my life to refer to my friends, my amigos. I started to get up, then noticed that my dog is standing up and wagging its tail excitedly. Jesus seems to be doing the same thing, and I look at him, and it's both the most beautiful and weird thing I've ever seen in my life. I wiped my nose on my blue terry cloth robe and barked out a snorting laugh at all the excited butt wagging. Then my eyes grew wide when I heard my dog say, he's ready, my Lord. Okay, my dog didn't say that, but he said it just as sure as I'm telling you this story. Like a tennis match, I looked from my dog to my Lord and back to my dog and back to my Lord. And I realized now that my butt is wagging too. To Benaiah and my audience, I say, Cammy loves this part of my death. She didn't see it actually happen with the dog, but she loves to hear me tell it. Her asking me to relive this tale accounts for 86% of the 10,000 times I've told it. Even though things are different here, we share an even deeper relationship in God's eternal kingdom than we ever did while we were married on earth. Anyway, back to the story. While we are all laughing and wagging our butts like my dog, Jesus laughed with me. And that's when I realized just how different things are now. I wasn't afraid. In a weird sort of way, I didn't really remember what it was like to be afraid. It's like trying to remember a nightmare. I knew instinctively that being afraid was bad, but I couldn't really feel it anymore. But that wasn't the only thing. For the first time in my life, my thoughts seemed clear and concise. There was no overthinking that usually characterized my mornings. There was no anxiety, no fear, no uncertainty, no shame, no guilt, no pressure to be more than I am. And that's when I realized I was looking deep into the eyes of my Savior. He was showing me who I was meant to be. He showed me what it was truly like to abide in Him and Him in me. The door was unlocked, the latch thrown back, the puzzle was solved, 
and the creation was with the creator. The slave had joined the master and miraculously become a son. With a thousand other thoughts, Jesus looked at me and said, I've got a place ready for you, cowboy. You're going to love it. I've spent every waking moment of your life preparing it just for you. And now that it's ready, I've come to personally take you home. And Kevin, Cammie is still asleep. And when she wakes up and finds you gone, she's going to thank me and look forward to the time when y'all are reunited. She's going to be okay and will do her part in my kingdom. But now it's time, my son. When he said, my son, my heart seemed to contain the entire existence of love. The strong baritone of his voice sang in my heart like the sweetest sound. I can't tell you what it sounded like because I don't know. It just was. It just is. It's all I ever want and will ever want. I would die a million deaths at the hands of the vilest torturer just to hear my Lord say, my son, one more time. The sound of his voice, the touch of his hand, the nearness of his person, the scars still visible on his hands, they fill me. No, they fulfill me. His presence takes my breath away and replaces it with the power of 10,000 stars being born in glory. Coming back to myself, I place my palm on the nail-scarred hand and allowed my Jesus to save me like he promised he would when I gave my life to him. I close my eyes in reverence and worship as I hear my Lord say to me, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Surely, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Chapter 2, Paradise. O-M-G! Literally, there he is. The throne of God is right there and he sits upon it. I'm on my knees and I don't even remember how I got there or how long I've been here. It's overwhelmingly glorious. To use words to describe the glory of God is to remain breathless because there are no words. The closest to a descriptive word about what I'm experiencing comes from these weirdly beautiful angels called cherubim that reverberate hallelujah. What they emit is is a sound that cannot be heard, a vibration that cannot be felt. It's just something that is forever and always. I could close my eyes and get lost in its beauty for all eternity without want, need, desire, or dream except to be with my God. Finally, I rise at an unseen behest and behold sights not meant for my eyes and sounds meant only for God. It is overwhelmingly beautiful. It is paradise. It is the garden of God. It is the jewel of I am. And everyone is here. There are family, friends, acquaintances, and even strangers that I somehow seem to weirdly know from somehow or somewhere. But most of all, there is an excitement building in the air. Like a thunderstorm headed towards a drought-stricken land, something wonderful and new is coming. It is inevitable. It is invincible. It is exceptional, and it is eternal, and it is coming. And if you come back next week, we will continue 